0: And you can become part of our Discord community. Learn more about the show and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com.
1: So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show.
0: Jumpin' G, Josifat.
1: Eee, Daniels. Andy I I feel like I owe it to myself and to you to check in about my absolute obsession with Ian Fleming now.
0: I I love that you're obsessed with Ian Fleming. I think I'm that's just so cool.
1: Absolutely obsessed and I think from the from the last time we spoke uh, I had only finished uh, Casino Royale, and I was about three-quarters of the way through Live and Let Die. Live and Let Die, I finished that. It was uh, it was great. And then I finished Moonraker, and that was the one that I was most nervous to to read uh, because my memory of the movie just doesn't hold up. I watched the trailer of the movie again, and I remembered kind of what was going on in the film, and it just is, doesn't really hold up. And now that I have finished Moonraker, I can tell you with great confidence that I am angry at the adaptation process of James Bond. The book is wildly, wildly better than the film. And I mean, it's not just, I can't even understate that a little bit. It's not just, oh, you know, it was kind of a sloppy day. It's a different movie. It is a stupid movie. And I am if I were alive at that point, I would have written a strongly worded letter to the producers.
0: Does it have Jaws uh, meeting that girl, Bad girl? bad guy girl jaws is a
1: is a fiction jaws is a cinema fiction he's part of the bond cinematic universe as as i just made up uh he's not in this movie he's not in moonraker wow yeah yeah you know what else happens spoiler they don't go to space really yeah yeah they don't go to space it's a grounded film it's about a it's about a uh it's it's a nuclear weapons thing and it's great
0: Interesting. I mean, they went to space because of Star Wars. That's you know they they wanted to find a way to kind of tap into the cultural zeitgeist. So, well, they they screwed it up, I guess. It's
1: so royally ah, oh, it's so royally. And I'm worried. I'm now in the middle of uh, Diamonds Are Forever. I'm not in the middle of it. I finished like the first chapter. But let me just tell you that one does open with the scorpions. So. Mm. Small win. I may be getting back on track. I don't know, but so far I am. I'm, I'm going to keep. Uh, I'm, I'm going to have to keep checking in because I am. I can tell you after now three and a little bit books, I'm hooked. I'm in it. Wow. Yeah, I'm going to ride this one out.
0: Well, good. I look forward to uh, hearing how they all turn out. What else you got going on? You do anything good? I saw two movies this week. Um, no. Other than the Film Board movie, I haven't really had a chance to do much of anything.
1: Well, that was the one. We did the Hail Caesar, and you were a real curmudgeon about that. <laughs> and then the second one I finally caught up on was uh was uh, the big short.
0: Oh, yeah. What'd you think? Oh,
1: I adored it and I was so mad. <laughs> I was so, exactly oh it was that's so good.
0: It, that's what it does so well. <laughs> I was furious.
1: I mean fuming. I couldn't get up. I couldn't like physically stand up at the end. I like watched the credits and was gripping the armrests. I was like, I hate these guys so much. Uh, yeah. But I, you know, I loved everything about it. That whole avant-garde bit of um, you know, of using these kind of fourth wall tools to explain an incredibly complex topic and make it dramatically interesting to me was was really powerful. I thought that was terrific.
0: Yeah, it works really well. And it's done in a way where it also is kind of pointing out the fact that our attention spans are too short to actually figure these things out unless a celebrity is <laughs> like, here's Margot Robbie in it a bubble bath. <laughs> <laughs> and also, you know, it tells us, you know, this is something important and now you can probably forget about it. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> Cause I don't know what Margot Robbie was selling. <laughs>
1: that was, yeah, it was, it, it was a pretty powerful film. We also watched Spectre again, uh, over the weekend. And I think I, I'm telling you that has improved with age. Nice. Maybe it's because I'm on my Bond bender, uh, but it's it is much better even than I remembered it. It's not the worst of the Daniel Craig's certainly.
0: Well, I I definitely look forward to catching up with that one again sometime soon. Yeah, because I I mean I you know I enjoyed it. I know um, it's gotten accused of being boring and just not kind of messi- messing too much with some of the history and stuff. But you know. I I remember having a good time, so I'm curious to see that one again.
1: Did you uh, Did you see anything this uh, this week? Did you do anything good besides? Uh, I think you already told me. You said no.
0: Uh, no, I. You know, it's it's Girl Scout cookie season, and so I've been uh, when we have free time, I'm out door to door helping my daughter sell Girl Scout cookies.
1: This is my favorite time of year. Can I tell you what I did? It's so bad. I actually, uh, I I made sure that our neighborhood Girl Scout came to my door when my wife wasn't here (laughs) so I could order oh man so I could just burn the barn down with cookies I mean I I went I went a little bit crazy and then I told her I said you gotta make sure you deliver it just to me just to me and I did that move with the eyes like the two fingers in my eyes two fingers in her eyes you know that move oh yeah I said do we understand each other to this girl scout and I don't think she did because she ran away screaming to her mother <laughs> I kid. That's a joke. Yeah.
0: Terrible. Oh, those terrible. Thin mints. Thin mints. There's frozen, a new cookie this frozen year. Frozen thin mints. Mm.
1: Are you are you are you happy with the new cookie? Have you?
0: You know, I don't know what the new cookie is for you because they they change in different markets. They do. What's the yeah. new
1: cookie for you?
0: The Savannah smiles.
1: Okay, tell me about that one.
0: they what, what am I cookies. missing? Oh,
1: They're... we. That's our. We got that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> those are those are my new favorite. And yeah, because I've never had them before; they're delish.
1: Do you get like as a as a family? Do you get uh, samples?
0: No. What we do get is boxes and boxes of cookies sitting in our house <laughs> all the time, saying, "Hey, eat me! I'm delicious cookie."
1: <laughs> <laughs> I can see you
0: at like you
1: know four hundred pounds, and you are yelling to your daughter, "Put another one down for me." <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, oh, it's Andy. getting close to that point. Oh, that's why I gotta keep walking it off. I go to door. Right. door. <laughs> that's right.
1: Oh, good on you, man. Well, should we tell the people where we're from?
0: Yes, where are we from? <laughs>
1: This is The Next Reel on rashpixel.fm, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that over there is Andy Nelson. Howdy, howdy, howdy. And we spoil movies tonight on the show, the second in our series on great films and their remakes, with our first remake of the bunch, the outer space homage to High Noon, Peter Hyams' 1981 Outland, before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com, subscribe to the show on iTunes, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at thenextreel. And if you've ever felt the urge to right great wrongs, thwart villains, and decompress some dudes real, real good while you're at it, well then you should head over to the NextReels Instagram, hashtag PonyPrize, hashtag guessTheMovieChallenge.
0: And with that, let's head on over to Scotland and check in with Stephen Smart, who's busy mining titanium in the Scottish Islands. Hey guys. Last week's movie was 70s Noir Night Moves from 1975, directed by Arthur Penn and starring Gene Hackman, James
1: Wood and Melanie Griffith. Congrats to AtFegFay who guessed it on
0: Image 3. You're entered once again into the 2016 Pony Prize hat. As always, a new challenge that's Monday, so thanks guys and see you later.
1: We've got some follow-up from the blot spot.
0: Yes, he says, I like the semi-real-time aspect of High Noon, and I think they did their best to build tension. The real problem is they didn't have enough plot to fill the hour leading up to the confrontation, so the film dragged tremendously. The climax was okay, but didn't have the punch that I was expecting to close out the story. Gary Cooper gave a very bland performance, and I have to agree that I just see Lloyd Bridges as his silly airplane persona now. Don't even get me started on that song. Now that was so tedious. The idea of this film worked for me, but the execution did not. Your rank 103, my rank 182.
1: That was a really good reading, Andy. I think when you started saying tedious, you turned into a mean girl. <laughs> Is that what happened? That was so tedious. <laughs> <laughs> I think we agree with uh, with old Ben Lot on this one. I think we do. I, it, I, I think we do. Yeah. And yet somehow we ended up uh, uh, pretty far away from him in the ranking.
0: Yeah, I I attribute that to my um, clinging to the need to still rank it as a classic, and maybe I I couldn't quite pull myself away from that.
1: Well, thank you for accepting the blame. That makes feel me feel better.
0: <laughs> it's it's all on me,
1: Andy. Let's do trailers.
0: So I found out about my uh, the trailer for or the f- the movie for the trailer that I'm going to talk about which is called Creature Designers the Frankenstein Complex I found out about this uh via a tweet by Joe Dante
1: Joe who, Dante
0: Yeah who is uh, interviewed in this film he is a a a director who has had a lot of creatures in his films and he is interviewed in this documentary along with other directors and uh creature designers this looks like a really fun documentary just kind of about the whole world of of creature effects and kind of that real world uh creature design and then it also looks like it kind of looks at the CG side of things so you got you've got makeup effects you've got robotic effects you've got stop motion animation CG all of this sort of stuff used to tell the story and how these people come up with these things to do that this looks like a really interesting documentary the sort of thing that i just would just totally eat up it's uh premiering right now at the Berlinale ale uh, film festival in market which i believe is starting if it hasn't started already it's starting very soon and goes for about a week or two and it's going to be playing there and then hopefully it's going to be out in the rest of the world but um you know this is the sort of thing that as a young film fan, special effects were really kind of one of the first things I latched onto, And just watching monster movies and just special effects and Indiana Jones. And you can see like the 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 crazy clouds coming out of the sky and going down into the arc and just all that sort of stuff. I was so mesmerized by how they did all these effects. And the creatures just always blew me away. And having a whole movie kind of talking about these people behind... The designs of all this stuff it just thrills me i love watching these guys talk about the passion they have for this and where it came from How i do think i
1: could not agree more i i really enjoyed this trailer and frankly i don't think i had ever actually seen some of these guys that right, i feel like right. i've been talking about for a long time some of them look like they may not live regularly in civilization <laughs> <laughs> that was really great. Uh I just I, there this is a a film that celebrates just straight up imagination and I uh, you know what it, I'm going to amend that it's straight up imagination and where it meets science and I think that's really fun. I mean inventing the mechanics and inventing the programming and inventing the 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 applications that actually drive their imagination, I think, is—it's like it's its a dream for a humanities major, you know? I mean, it <laughs> ends up being, I think, something really to celebrate, and I can't wait to see it.
0: You know, I will say the one person who I was really hoping that would pop up in here is Rob Boteen who we talked about on The Thing and just the amazing stuff he did on there. And he also worked on Seven and Fight Club. He's worked on just some amazing projects. And then he kind of disappeared from the scene in 2002 after working on Mr. Deeds, of all things. And uh, it's just like, I I mean, I think he had done one episode of Game of Thrones recently, but it's like, I have no idea what the guy's up to anymore. And I would love to have kind of caught up with him or gotten a better sense of what he's doing now and and hear some words from him. But regardless, even though Rob is not in it, there are a lot of fantastic people in here. So I am excited. Totally agree. When's it hit? Um, I don't know yet because it's still at the film market in Berlinale. And it's going to be one of those things, you know, see who uh, picks it up and where it gets out to. But if nothing else, you can go check out the trailer right now and then just uh, cross your fingers that you'll find a way to watch it sometime soon. Follow them on Facebook.
1: All right, then. We should do that. My trailer is uh, tonally uh, a little bit different than yours. A little little bit. Uh, My trailer is um, Mike and Dave Need Wedding Dates. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so um,
0: this is this is this is going to fall into the realm of of uh, a sentence as a movie title like Zack and Mary make a porno. Yes, there's a there should be a
1: series, I think, um, for another podcast. So this is uh, comes from director uh, Jake Zemansky, writers Andrew J. Cohen and Brendan O'Brien stars Anna Kendrick, uh, Zach Efron, Aubrey Plaza and Adam Devine and uh, Stephen Root. You got to throw him in there. There, there. Oh, you know, yeah. there's a bunch. There, there are a bunch of people in this. But those are the big ones, and uh, it's the story of these two brothers who are apparently idiots. And they, they're such idiots that their parents say they can't come to this to their sister's wedding unless they get dates that will tone them down right that that the apparently they want the dates to be uh ladies and they will come and and tone them down and the ladies uh Anna Kendrick and Aubrey Plaza uh they don't tone them down they end up being the the they end up being the bros in the in this brotastic um movie and they <laughs> end up being just horrible influences even on these guys who are already idiots so i'm going to tell you the truth uh i laughed at this um at this trailer, I really did. Uh, I really like Adam Devine. I think he's really funny on uh, um, on Modern Family, and uh, it, so I, I I was already predisposed to kind of like it. Of course, Anna Kendrick, Aubrey Plaza, uh, you know she. Hey, she did a Hal Hartley movie. I I I dig uh, Hal Hartley so much. It was it was guilt by association or fandom by association. So I laughed at it. But the reason I really wanted to talk about it was because. It seems like this is one of those movies that is that is uh you know it it's a an infantile sort of film that that is actually shooting for gender equality in a way that I think <laughs> is really funny that it's making these women uh, the foil for really offensive things, and I think these and these guys are also behind uh, you know Neighbors and Neighbors Two, Sorority Rising. If you haven't seen the trailer for Sorority Rising, it's exactly the same thing. I mean, this is Selena Gomez leading a gang of you know thuggish offensive ladies in bikinis, and it's it there there's a lot to you know if you're sitting in a theater with your mother as I was, there's a lot to find offensive about it. But I'm not going to lie to you, I laughed at that too.
0: Hey, that trailer made me laugh more than Hail Caesar did.
1: <laughs> what do you think? Am I am I on on track here?
0: I I agree with you. I this is one of those I was like, oh, this is going to be just absolute <laughs> garbage. And I was just laughing. I th- I thought it looked really funny, and it may end up being a bad movie, but I guarantee that I will end up laughing at it.
1: I, I'm I'm in favor of uh, of gender equality if it allows me to see dumb movies like this, um, and and so I say dumb with the greatest appreciation.
0: Uh, yeah, I I can always look at Anna Kendrick and kind of go if she's in it, I'm like okay, I'm gonna give that a little bit more of a benefit of the doubt because I feel like she picks projects not just. Uh, for like a check, I think that she kind of is looking for something a little more, and maybe that's just me reading that into her. But I feel like that's kind of what she's doing. So, so I give it, I give it an extra vote for that,
1: right? And and I, you know, I look at Zac Efron. I I don't think I've seen a single film that he has done since High School Musical, and I've seen about twenty minutes of that because of my kids. So I haven't seen anything, but but um, Dirty Grandpa intrigues me. It's got De Niro in it, and he looks good in the trailer. So I'm, you know, I'll probably see it.
0: Yeah, it, it looks like something that I'd watch late at night. I agree. Yeah, and yeah, uh, yeah.
1: so uh, here's hoping he can pull that off. And uh, and you know, the dude's cut. And talk about aspirational. I need to go work out.
0: <laughs> I know. Yeah,
1: that's. Do you remember what it was like to be young?
0: Yep. <laughs> There was you a should, day. You
1: should always just say no because that lets you off the hook. <laughs> I don't remember. Did, I just, did that make it sound more pathetic? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it it more pathetic? yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh. Anyway, so my uh, my film hits. You, um, you, you
0: want to say yep yeah because if you say no, it sounds like you're so far away from having been young <laughs> that you can't even remember it anymore.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was yesterday. <laughs> I got to go work out. <laughs> well, this uh, my trailer hits July 8th. 2016 excellent it's a summer romp ah Andy your wife is one stupid lady you want to go get drunk
0: in a mining town on the second moon of Jupiter something deadly is happening see that this is just like every other mining town. I work these people hard and I uh, I let them play hard. There's never much trouble. We're all professionals. I'm sure we are.
1: Outland, the ultimate enemy is still man. Outland! Oh, Andy, this may sound familiar. A marshal personally compelled to face a deadly enemy finds that his town refuses to help him again. Outland 1981 from writer-director Peter Hyams stars Sean Connery, Francis Sternhagen, Peter Boyle, uh, James Sicking, Kika Markham, and Clark Peters, among other fantastic people. I had seen this movie before. I yield the floor before I give you any sense of my take on this because I want to hear what you thought, Andy. Go.
0: Well, and knowing that I had never seen this before. Yeah, yeah. I I ended up liking this, uh, and I really wasn't expecting to. Yeah, which you I, did. <laughs> no, I I expected to totally think this was just just terrible eighties, uh, you know, just awful sci-fi, and. It had some issues, but on the whole, I actually really ended up enjoying this. And I think I actually enjoyed this more than High Noon. Yes, you did. Which oh. I wasn't, I also wasn't expecting, especially before rewatching High Noon. So
1: <laughs> I am, I am pumping my <laughs> fists in the air, Andy. That is such a win.
0: Oh. I, yeah. And I was really surprised. I, I, one of the things that most surprised me was actually how, little of a remake or just kind of a retelling of High Noon this is, it really only kicks in in like the last...
1: Yeah, the last 25 I, minutes or something. Yeah,
0: it's like the last act is yeah. kind of the High Noon portion of this. Thank which, God. Well, which, which actually I think benefits the story yeah. because you don't have that... Uh, entire film with like I mean High Noon's big problem in the second act was the plotting of the marshal going around trying to find people to help him we didn't have to worry about that we have the kind of the one obligatory scene where he's trying to find somebody to help him and it's not it doesn't work but up until then it's like there's kind of this detective stuff going on trying to figure this out you've got some great sci-fi stuff with some really fun effects I had a blast
1: I am so relieved (laughs) <laughs> I I am really relieved. I deeply enjoyed uh, watching this movie again. It took me all the way back. It it felt in some ways. I mean, there were some sequences that felt dated. There are some sequences that have I have a little bit of trouble with that don't that don't hold up quite as well as they did. But generally, I think this film offers a a much more interesting uh, uh, much more interesting story than it is than its reputation would allow you to believe. And uh, I think Sean Connery is is actually well placed in this film. I don't find him uh, strangely miscast. I I think he is an an interesting Marshall. i love his team it has a, a very much an alien vibe to it like if you if you got rid of the the bad guys in the last act and you replace it with alien creatures and turn some lights off the the whole uh, home aloneing of the of the uh, space station uh, could really have been done in in an aliens type Film and I, I thought that was really interesting. It's a, it's a taut kind of little uh, gory uh, chase sequence, and I, I thought it was just great. I really enjoyed it. Um, if there's anything that I had trouble with, it's, it is uh, that uh, the reward in the third act, at the end, the big fight at the very end. Um, I think the lesson is, uh, fight scenes between two dudes in spacesuits are just not that interesting uh they, <laughs> <laughs> you know what i mean they just move a little bit too slowly and uh and so it's a little bit um tough for me to 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 really find that a, a compelling fight at the end but there were some sequences in here that are really taut steven burkoff uh it, it plays a bit role in this film and he is the uh, center uh, to a terrific uh standoff sequence that i think it just celebrates a, a really interesting Muted view of the slums of space
0: that's something that uh, I really appreciated. I mean Hyams uh, Peter Hyams, who directed this, um, he has said how influential Ridley Scott uh, and what Ridley Scott did with Alien and Blade Runner, um how they were for him and uh, just trying to develop this story. I mean, he wanted to make a Western at the time, and nobody would let him make a Western, because Westerns at the time were considered kind of dead, a dead genre. No one wanted to do them. No one would buy tickets to them. And then he realized, ah, the Western has moved to space, but now all of the frontier stories are in space. And so he's like, well, I'll just write a Western, except I'm going to... Have it in space, and that's exactly what he did. So he came up with this story of this mining colony, which is kind of like an old West town, and kind of created the story about this Marshall and I, and and then of course, pulling some of those high noon elements. and I think it works really well and and he said that he he said, I thought of the Dodge cities of the past and the oil rigs of the present which i think uh is uh kind of paints it nicely the way that the look has that very industrial feel which is again something he pulled from Ridley Scott everything is is really about uh function not form and it just has this uh it creates this look for the mood of Io on this uh, this little mining colony that they have there that really seems authentic i really felt the presence of the world here
1: I did too. You know, I, one of the uh, the uh, critics quoted on the Wikipedia page is Desmond Ryan from the Philadelphia Inquirer, and he calls it a brilliant sci-fi western. In many ways, Hyams has made a film that is more frightening than Alien because he surmises that space will change us very little and the real monsters we are liable to encounter will be in the next spacesuit. I, I could not put that better. I think that uh, that's one of the things that he does so well, is he sets it in an environment that I I'm all, already have an affinity toward, uh, but he he eliminates the, the movie monster element and makes it the human monster, and suddenly it's a movie that I think is much more terrifying, because that could be anybody uh, that's out there trying to, you know, wandering around my the, the hallways with a shotgun. I mean, it could be anybody. And so I, I think it, uh, it ends up being really compelling
0: yeah the um i mean it's it is a nice touch you know you've got these evil corporations in both the alien franchise and in this film, and uh it certainly seems uh, very prevalent today so it's it's definitely something that that you know even back then filmmakers were latching on to how these corporations can kind of take over and pretty much uh run things and rule uh rule people and the government is kind of gone because i mean this is really about corporate interests and how these corporate interests are really kind of overlooking this this drug addiction that people have to basically get work done um more, get more work done and um they're kind of okay with people who freak out and kill themselves or kill others because hey as long as more work is getting done and our production's higher and we can sell more then that's that's great and so it's it's great seeing that story placed in this and i think that addition to the story of this high noon story it, it just gives so much more meat to that element of the story than it did in high noon where it's just you know frank just wants to get revenge
1: yeah, yeah, I no, absolutely. I think it gives it a, a much more interesting element. Peter Hyams uh is you know, I'm I'm looking at his uh directorial credits, you know, he'd come off of Capricorn 1 and Hanover Street which uh with H- Harrison Ford and I had not seen that. Um which I probably should. It looks like it's one that's that might be worth seeing. Uh, and then Into Outland um but he's also done some films that I really enjoy, you know, from uh, he did 2010. I actually really liked that. I think I'm I may be in a minority.
0: I remember liking it, but um Tom Hanks who is a huge 2001 fan um, I believe at one point he said, you know, Peter Hyams should be taken out and his legs should be broken for what he did with 2010.
1: <laughs> that seems like such a <laughs> not a Tom
0: Hanks comment. I know. I, I think he must have been drinking before he said that on uh, Letterman, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh,
1: I, I really uh, enjoyed Narrow Margin, uh, Gene Hackman and Ann Archer. And again, James Seeking. Uh, I, he's uh, He did I, end, end of Days, right, with Schwarzenegger.
0: And I, I loved Stay Tuned when that came out and and Time Cop was a ton of fun. Yeah, Time so, I mean, Cop
1: was also he, a ton of fun.
0: He's he's kind of uh he hasn't had much um in the last decade or so. I think Sound of Thunder was such a big um problematic film and such a big flop that um I know he's I think he's kind of struggled getting stuff out. I think the other stuff that he's ended up putting out may have all gone straight to video. I don't think Beyond Reasonable Doubt got a theatrical release. Well, it's too bad
1: remember. because you know I think he's you know maybe he's he's moving on I don't know but but I think he has kind of this um, he, you know the the High Noon vibe sort of in his bones a little bit and I think structurally the the changes that he made to the to the tone of High Noon and to the structure of High Noon really uh, work very well and he added the story that we felt was missing uh, in in the original uh, and and made it more of a story about that. Uh, than just waiting and i think that ends up being structurally in terms of the script i thought it was very natural i think it you know there was none, none of the dialogue felt very strange and i think this gets back to i can't remember who said it i am almost sure you brought this quote up uh that the, um, the you know the the trick to doing was it asimov or the trick to doing good sci-fi or believable sci-fi is taking a a believable like a normal everyday setting and solution and changing one thing Right. Well, that's kind of what this feels like, right? It doesn't take long for you to feel like you're, you're in the space station, that the space station could be anywhere. It's not until the third act that we really realize the, the impact of their location. They could be underwater, a la the abyss. They could be, I mean, the setting in those halls, they could be anywhere, a military base, whatever. Um, it's the it ends up being the story I think that drives it forward the search for these drugs and the the fantastic battle between uh, battle of wills between Peter Boyle and Sean Connery.
0: Yeah, they uh, they work really well and it's a it's cast well. I think that he brought some great people onto this. Um, I think Peter Boyle has a strong presence for somebody who's kind of running a mine you know on a on a on a moon like he just he seemed to fit that role really well even though you don't really see him doing much in the way of leading but just just his presence just i I don't know i seemed to feel it whether it was like the way that he was talking to uh connery in the meeting or just all the scenes in his office like the golf stuff which there's something about that that just seemed so right for that particular character
1: Absolutely right. I, I thought he nailed it. And he's, every time I watch it, I'm I'm surprised anew that this is Peter Boyle, because I, I think about him as, you know, Frankenstein's monster. I think about him <laughs> as kind of the comedian. And, um, I think he just, he really, he really nails the mob boss, uh, role. Yeah. Um so uh, let's talk about first of all, before we get more into the cast, let's talk about how this thing got made the the uh, production of it. You already said that it was a western that was never going to get made how did How did it end up getting on screen?
0: This is uh, a movie when when um so like I had said, Hyams had written this script uh kind of his western in space and he, and he was getting it out there, and he found some producers. I believe it was uh richard roth uh, Richard A. Roth that he was talking to and um they uh, everybody was a, a kind of having a difficult time with the title because the working title was Io, which is the name of the moon out on uh, from Jupiter on which this uh, this mining colony uh, resides, and uh, they said, "Look, you got to change the title. Nobody. It, it looks like the number ten is on the front of the script. No one knows what it is." And and Haynes was like, "No, no, 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 no. Everybody's going to know that this says Io." And so he's like, come on, oh, we'll do a poll. And so they just walked out onto the street and they just asked, like, I don't know, how many random people, like 10 random people or whatever. What does this say? And everybody said 10. <laughs> <laughs> and so so Hyams is like, uh, okay, I guess you got a point. <laughs> So they brainstormed, and I believe I think it was Roth who came up with the actual title Outland, which I, I like. I think it's a nice title. It uh, it has a vibe that puts it in kind of a place and kind of a, a mental space. So I think the title works really well. And then uh, so these guys then uh, went to the Lad Company to get uh, get the film made, and the Lad Company was a company that Alan Ladd Jr. started, I believe. Um, you know, he was a son of Alan Ladd, and uh, uh, you know, kind of a, a big guy in the in the film industry. And um, he was actually somebody who I think, when he was working at Fox, actually wanted to get Star Wars made. And uh, so he's kind of big in kind of that sort of thing. And I. I can't remember exactly what happened with him, but somehow um, he ended up leaving Fox um, because I think he went from president there and then Star Wars, Alien, all that stuff was there. He left to form the Lad Company and... I, I'm not quite sure what the story is. I can't. I can't recall why he didn't stay with Fox with the Lad Company, but they actually ended up going over to uh, Warner Brothers and kind of working with Warner Brothers. They kind of had this deal there, and starting in 1980, they started cranking out movies with Warner Brothers. And under Warner Brothers, the Lad Company became a kind of kind of. Big And it certainly is a logo that I really recognize, mostly because of Blade Runner, that logo of that tree that kind of grows in scan lines as you watch it. um, Really kind of, uh, I always remember that. But I mean, um, aside from Outland, they did Body Heat, they did Chariots of Fire, um, Night Shift, um, The Right Stuff and so and then of course they start getting into stuff like police academy and they also did once upon a time in america so they did a lot of great stuff and then um because of some problems that they ended up having in some films that just didn't make their money they ended up having to close their deal with warner brothers and i believe they actually are still around doing stuff kind of doing co-productions like they uh co-produced to get braveheart out and most recently gone baby gone actually so they're still around um but uh there's nothing like the stretch they had with Warner Brothers in the early 80s. So I don't know. I I mean, I kind of went on about the Ladd Company. But I think that they were just a great company back then. And I love seeing companies like that that uh, really kind of push the limits. And Alan Ladd Jr. actually came to set. I believe it was the day that they were, you know, the guy who goes uh, kind of like, um, very peacefully, walks into the the elevator. Yeah, without yeah. without a spacesuit on, and he goes all the way down, and then he come. Then when they get it back up and they open it, his his body had decompressed, and and he'd basically exploded. Um, Alan Ladd Jr. looked at it and said, "No, no, no, you need more gore. You really need to kind of amp it up a little bit, and really wanted them to make sure that it, it looked like a guy had exploded." And so, I don't know. Peter Hyam says that uh, working with the Ladd Company was one of just the the most dreamy ways that you can put a movie together because these were people who really respected film and really wanted to make good stuff and let the creative team really be creative. So I I think that's just an amazing uh, amazing thing to hear. Well, I
1: think it's really cool and I think, you know, given that you've already introduced the uh um you know, the exploding the exploding elevator boy, uh, <laughs> I think we should we should transition into the visual effects because uh, it, the visual effects are, I, I don't think people talk enough about how cool the effects are in this film. They look
0: ridiculously dated, I think, in some cases.
1: But in some cases, they really hold up.
0: I, you know, I think they're really fun. And it really surprised me because, I, I mean, it happens so quickly when you start the movie. But when you get kind of an exploding head, I was like, wow, I wasn't expecting that. That kind of it perked me up a little bit.
1: This was the era of exploding heads. <laughs> I think right I mean we had just come out of of Dawn of the Dead and uh, scanners also 1981 which is really an exploding head film and uh and, and here we are in outland which not only gives us the exploding head but the decompression now when people normally think of this effect they think of total recall and uh poor uh Quade uh, oh, yes you know getting getting his eyes sucked out and and I will say in total recall they definitely moved the effect forward. 'Cause the eyes oh, yes. they were then on stalks, you know, and that was <laughs> they did the full snail and uh, so that was pretty gruesome <laughs> but you see that effect in this film and they had this this wonderful um essentially a balloon mask uh that had the different components that would inflate and move in different uh, at different times as they inflated this head and then the uh the propellant explodes the the blood and gore out uh into the mask into the elevator it's it's really uh it, it was really yeah, i i I remember the first time I saw this, I thought, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs>
0: right? Yeah, absolutely. It it was just really kind of fun to see. And like I was saying um, about uh, visual effects earlier, it's just it's thrilling to watch that sort of stuff happen on screen. And yes, it does look dated now, but... It just there's this visceral presence of it that just makes it uh, makes it really kind of feel like it's just a part of the film and part of the story and I I really just dug it.
1: So I couldn't find a, a film that did decompression uh, exploding heads in space before this one, but I think if you think Total Recall was wholly original, you need to see Outland because they do it more and the heads actually full on explode. Oh yeah, totally. Pretty worth quickly
0: it. too. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. You know, you a, don't have a lot of time. Not, not a slow process. <laughs>
1: Move it forward, people. Yeah, I don't We're think any schedule. heads
0: exploded in Sunshine. They, uh, they really no. didn't go for the exploding heads there.
1: They, but in Sunshine, wait, they, they lit on fire.
0: No, but there's the one guy who tries to leap across, and and uh, he misses, and he ends up just. You see him just basically freeze. He doesn't yeah, he decompress. Freezes. He just right. freezes.
1: Right it turns out as uh, as you may know i went into a little bit of a rat hole on this whole thing and i'm going to post a link uh to a a fantastically disgusting um uh gizmodo article where they they actually wrote up what really happens when you are pumped pumped out of an airlock in space but i i will just say uh that um i'm going to read this passage At this point, you're not dead dead. You're just mostly dead. Your brain is still functional and your heart is still going. You can still be revived, surprisingly, with minimal permanent injury if you're immediately returned to an atmosphere. However, this savior window lasts 90 seconds. After that, your blood pressure drops low enough that it does begin to boil, which damages your heart and nixes any chance of resuscitation. It is so... This whole article is so bad it goes through the the every sort of second uh, as your body begins to adjust to space wow yeah i'm going to i'm going to be sleeping with this on the mind i don't think i'm going to be able to shake it another <laughs> reason
0: that i probably just won't ever go to space yeah
1: but definitely go to gizmodo in the show notes and check this out because it's really awful um the other thing that was that was i think um uh, really highlighted showcased in Outland is uh Introvision. What is Introvision?
0: Yeah, I I had uh I mean obviously I've seen Introvision before without realizing it and uh it's it's just There's this different uh, ways of doing sort of model work. And IntraVision, uh, just reading from Wikipedia, was a variation on a front projection process that allowed filmmakers to view a finished composite of live action and plate photography through the camera's viewfinder on set and in real time. During its heyday, starting with this movie, IntraVision enjoyed the novelty of visual effect compositing in camera, thus eliminating the, the need to wait for photochemical compositing. So basically... Filmmakers could build models and have all of this stuff on set, and they could also do front projection, and they could have all this stuff playing together, and they could watch it, and they could actually film it all happening. And this is really kind of where it, uh, where it got its roots. But, I mean, geez, it was used all the way into The Fugitive when in the big train crash sequence. So, it's, uh, it's um, uh, I think that CG may have kind of killed the need for it, but I think up through that point, this was a very effective tool
1: it is a a very re- reliable i think uh, you know precursor to the virtual camera right i mean this is this uh, we talk about the the, sort of the how how fantastic it is to be able to have these 3D sets and virtual cameras that directors can, you know, adjust in real time. But what this lets you do is that that real-time compositing is fantastic. And so when you read about how this thing was produced, they started all the model work, you know, two months before uh, they started the actors. So the the models were, were ready to shoot uh, by the time the actors got on set. It seems like a really efficient way to, to to do this at the time, uh, so we'll put a little video in the show notes. There's a fun little video it's very short. It's about three minutes on the effects uh, of outland and and uh, it's it's worth checking out very cool very very cool. so cinematography uh, achieving that uh, uh, that gritty uh, space western look was Stephen Goldblatt.
0: I think they capture a really great look here. Hyams typically likes to shoot his own stuff, um, but I think this may have been early enough in his career where he was still having other people do it. I'm not quite sure why he had Stephen Goldblatt do it, but I think that Goldblatt um, does a great job here. Um, a lot of shadows, a lot of dark. I know Hyams really likes to kind of keep things dark and... Um, He's one of those people who, you know, if if a character's using a flashlight and the whole room and the audience can see the whole room, he's like, well, why does that person have a flashlight then? If we can see everything, if somebody's using a flashlight, he says, you got to have a dark room that you can't see anything except for what the flashlight is shining on. I think that's really smart, and I think that working with Goldblatt to achieve that, um, he does that, and also I think he. Um, between the two of them, they have a very good sense of space, and in a widescreen frame like this film, I think they do a great job with the wide shots and a great job with the, the close-ups, just finding the right way to compose all of the shots.
1: I'm just going to say this, Stephen Goldblatt. Uh, I I think he had he is a, an incredibly versatile DP, right? He went from Outland, which was early in his career, I think it was like his sixth or seventh film, uh, to— um, uh, Things like young Sherlock Holmes, Lethal Weapon, Lethal Weapon 2, our favorite Joe versus the Volcano, uh, which, you know, gives you a chance to do those kind of comic uh, sets to the Prince of Tides, uh, which showcases just gorgeous, um, uh, like, beach scenes, um, you know, at the lake or at the waterfront, you know, it's East Coast down by the Carolinas or something. Anyway, I'd like to pretend I'd never saw it, but it was beautifully shot. (laughs) Uh, to the legal <laughs> thrillers, right, Pelican Brief, and and then of course, uh, you know, Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. So
0: you know, yeah, he's all over the place. Can't, he's and all he's still working. over the place.
1: Yeah, still working at uh, the Intern, his most recent, but uh, the Oscar winner, The Help. He uh, he was DP on The Help in 2011. So he's he's all over the place, uh, and I think it's it's really fun to see just how capable a, a DP was, you know, in his very very early days. He's just terrific. Absolutely. Uh we've talked about how much we love the the look of the thing. Uh production design by Philip Harrison. Any comments on the any additional comments on the design?
0: No, I just I think that it was really solid. I love the models and like I said earlier, the uh decision, I guess really, between Hyams and then also Harrison to kind of create this this kind of rough oil rig sort of environment for this mine. I really just enjoy it from the way that the, the all the doors are almost like it makes you feel like you're on a submarine because you've got those giant hatches that they have to kind of it's I I'm expecting the little spinning wheels that they have to pull to kind of get in and out of each of the doors. I it just it works so well and the way that they blend The model work to the real stuff. I mean, there's a shot really early on in the film where you see from just really far away, you see this mine and then you see this door open up and you see these figures getting out like getting ready for work. And then you kind of follow them and you kind of track back across the model and then and you see kind of the whole expanse of this, this frame that they have to do the mining on. And then you keep pulling back and then all of a sudden you have actors right there and you have this scene of these guys doing the mining, the way that they design all that and just the sense of space. And I will say as far as one of the... Set pieces that actually I think was one of my favorites that uh, I give uh, kudos to Harrison for putting together is kind of the chase through the living quarters, the big chase scene that we have um, midway through the film where uh, where Connery is after the uh, the drug dealer, and you're going uh, you're going through these uh, these narrow little passageways upstairs, downstairs, like all over the place, and then it ends in a kitchen where you've got this this last fight, and uh, I, you know. I thought that was just so well constructed, as a um, as a set. I really enjoyed the sense of space there, and both to Harrison's and uh, really everybody's credit, I really had a sense of where I was. I never felt lost.
1: Absolutely agree, and I think that's one of the best foot chases. Like to this day, it was just a great use of space and and uh, every dimension. And uh, being able to shoot it is just. Just great, which leads us I think to to editing I mean I think this is really tautly edited and it's fantastic that we only just talked about uh, Stuart Baird uh,
0: very recently yeah, he did uh, Casino Royale so it was great looking at this as something another film with some uh, some good action sequences that he had done long before he got to Casino Royale in 2006 i think that uh, baird just has a really solid sense of how to tell a story efficiently. This film had some slow-paced stuff and I got to admit when this film started and it 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 was kind of just a lot of slow text, a lot of expository There's a lot of text. Yeah, expository descriptive text kind of explaining things to me. I was like, "Oh lord, this is another Star Trek the Motion Picture," which <laughs> I think is one of the most difficult films to watch because the pacing is so so slow. And I was really nervous at first. And then the movie starts, and I've got to say, despite it having some, some nice, slow bits, those are, those are actually paced appropriately in the film, and the film actually moves by at a clip that I really uh, thought was a very fresh, modern clip.
1: I, I really agree, and I, I think you know you can see it when you parallel the, the chase we were just talking about um, through the, the living quarters into the kitchen with the parkour chase. In Casino Royale, I mean, you look at those things side by side and look at how the the action itself is constructed. And even though Outland gives you this incredibly claustrophobic um, kind of interior, and Casino Royale's parkour chase is so expansive and big, the way the shots are are constructed, the the pacing of the run is is very similar. I think that you can really see the sort of uh, cinematic DNA. Um, of of Outland, even in in something like uh, that Bond.
0: So it's good. funny. I, I hadn't actually uh, thought of comparing those two sequences, but that's actually a really a really good comparison: the parkour sequence and this sequence. The way that there's ups and downs and just in and out and through things. I mean, that actually is a really apt uh, way. It almost makes me think that maybe Martin Campbell and his team looked at this yeah. sequence a little bit, and you know, it's uh, it's interesting.
1: It really. That's that, That's what I thought too. Yeah. Let's talk about Mega Sound.
0: Mega Sound—that <laughs> is just a name that was destined to die. <laughs> yeah, too bad. Yeah, this was a sound system that uh, Warner Brothers actually created back in the early '80s, and it was it provided extra deep bass enhancement to uh, to uh, movies when they were released. I don't know how many mov- how many theaters ended up getting equipped with mega sound, <laughs> but um I, I wonder I if it's the think... same
1: number as uh, feel around
0: <laughs> feel around <laughs> sound. <laughs> Yeah, it's, um, let's see, theaters equipped for Megasound had an additional battery of speakers consisting of subs and horns. Usually all were placed on the stage behind the screen. This system also came along with extra power amps and specialized processing equipment. Megasound selected soundtrack events with lots of low-frequency content. Thuds, crashes, explosions, etc. were directed to these speakers at very high volume, creating a visceral effect intended to thrill the audience. Megasound has been best remembered for its infrasonic rumble capability. So.
1: Oh, I want to get me some of that.
0: Yeah, I guess uh, it, interestingly, it was allegedly tested on select audiences using the 1979 re-release of The Exorcist.
1: Oh, that would have been creepy.
0: That would have been really interesting to see. But uh, at least according to Wikipedia, it was only ever used on four films, Altered States in 1980. Oh, I love that movie. It, that movie is a trip and it, it would be interesting to see it in mega sound and then three movies in 1981 outland superman 2 and wolfen and that was it wow that's yeah, so I, funny
1: i mean you you look at it and and you think about mega sound and then you compare it to something like atmos another right. dolby thing and uh i you you know i wonder i wonder how if it's if it's one of those things it's going to catch really catch
0: well, yeah, right. Exactly. Like uh, how, I mean, there certainly have been more Atmos films than this. And I think more theaters have subscribed to it. But um, yeah, it does make you wonder, like with all the different constant changes that they have, you know, what is the next thing to uh, succeed? What's the next thing to kind of just fade away? Yeah. So Fascinating. I will say the sound mix on the movie when I was watching it was pretty impressive. It's pretty good. Yes, it is. yes uh, it is.
1: For what it's worth, it was shot in Pinewood, um, uh, you know, just like every big British space film.
0: <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know, it's funny, Peter Hyams, um, somebody um, he commented that somebody on IMDb said that uh, he's a DP director who loves natural lighting and i guess he actually responded to the person on imdb and said you know if if you're talking about natural lighting and you mean by by having control of the lights yeah then yes but uh, i like to shoot on stages he he only likes stage work because he has complete control of the look of what he's trying to achieve on the film and uh, so you know creating natural light maybe be but certainly not filming in natural light
1: um, it, but it's interesting because that you know I well I, I don't think I could uh, uh, m- make much of a comment about that na- stage lighting versus natural lighting because obviously this film is so artificial in terms of light but the use of light and the way they create light and dark contrast I think was really good one of the things I you know a couple of the highlight sequences the uh, when you talk about the the chase through the through the uh, the third act, right, That when he's outside and you've got the the you know the miscreants running through the halls. I, I thought that was really interesting because mostly it's really bright, right? They're in those giant tunnels and it's all white and everything's white. Then they go into the greenhouse and you get these high contrast red and black and green and black uh, you know panels, uh, the plates that I think are are really. Great contrast to what we had just seen, and I think it makes for a, a great, visually interesting uh chase uh, as a result.
0: Well, and then going from that to the exterior where you've got the final fight,
1: yeah, right? The final fight on the grid,
0: yeah. Uh, no, I, I it's got a great look all the way through, so yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. All right, well, let's talk about our favorites. Uh, in the cast, we've already talked a bit about Sean Connery.
0: This, you know, as much as I enjoy him in Untouchables, I vastly enjoyed him more here. There's something about him kind of as the lead where he's carrying the story that just, I guess I just really end up connecting with more. And sure, he won an Oscar for that one, but there's just, he really fit this world. And I loved him as that kind of high noon marshal who's, uh, you know, kind of stuck by himself having to figure all this stuff out and i love those moments where he's you know using his little spy cameras and he sees he sees uh you know um james Sicking's character uh having a meeting with peter boyle and kind of realizing how alone he is because his own team of people are all kind of working for the man i i i love that kind of sense and you've got that you know his his wife forsakes him and you've got that scene early on and just like there's some great moments there. And man, that monologue that he has when he's sitting in the, uh, I guess, the futuristic racquetball court with Francis Sternhagen. What a great moment he had right there. Yeah,
1: one of, my, one of the best and visually interesting, too. Again, super bright. And, and I love that incredibly wide shot in that racquetball court where it's just, I mean, there's it's. Just, perfect no distortion no nothing with them as far apart as they could be having such a great intimate conversation absolutely uh i thought he was great he was he was just what i was looking for he had been acting since 19 God, 57 uh so by the time he was in this movie i mean he did this and then right after time bandits king Ag- agamemnon and the fireman and uh i remember thinking who's that old guy you know what he acts, <laughs> he's still going he's he's <laughs> It's amazing, that guy. Yes, he is, yes. Uh, Anyhow, so Sean Connery, terrific uh, uh, Marshall.
0: And he's a great, uh, just going to him, the character, and uh, also to the script for a moment, I I think that it's really strong that you don't have to have a big like knockdown, drag-out brawl with Peter Boyle. At the end of this film, I mm-hmm. thought that showed some great restraint from Hyams that you know he dealt with the the uh, the problem people that Boyle had brought, but then the confrontation with Boyle was him just knocking him out, and then and then he leaves. And did you, you know, okay, did you like that? I loved it. Okay, I thought I thought that was great because then it's because as as a as an audience member, I knew okay. We had that conversation earlier where Boyle was talking to the guys to bring them here. And, and the guys, when he tells them that they're here to kill, kill the marshal, they're like, oh, boy, you know, if, if this fails, the next time that people are coming down, it's going to be for you. So you pretty much know that, oh, well, now it's his turn. You know, so I, I really enjoyed that.
1: So I, I, this is the first time I started thinking about this. But what would it have been like had, had uh, the marshal just arrested him? Right, the the punch, it, while it was momentarily gratifying, it seemed a bit out of character for me. And I I think having him, um, you know, come up and just there was he was not defending himself. He was not uh, it, this this whole sort of revenge punch seemed like strikingly eighties. Um, and and may of course it was made in the eighties, seventies, eighties, so that's that's appropriate. But it just seems like it was it was a little bit too much machismo for the character that we have gotten to know
0: i can see that i can i can definitely see that i guess in my head it kind of fit a little bit with the uh the high noon aspect of it where he kind of takes care of the miscreants and even though he doesn't arrest peter boyle's character he has has kind of you know i mean he's been kind of eavesdropping in all these conversations so he knew that that person had said that to Peter Boyle's character that if if these guys failed in killing uh, Sean Connery's character that uh, they would uh, come and get him so I for me I think that it was uh, it was a great way to kind of resolve it because we also knew that that was him throwing his tin star in the dirt you know. I mean as soon as we he's done with that we see him writing a letter to his wife saying I'll be there save that ticket for me yeah yeah and
1: packing his bag I I guess uh, the the reason it it falls a little bit deaf on me that final sequence is just because we've had such we've had two sequences by now of of Conry and Boyle together uh trading barbs and so we know to date their experience together is based on words and how and and who's going to be sh- the the sort of sharpest wit sharpest tongue and so re- resolving their relationship with a punch is is a bit too um tastic for me
0: i'm going to give you points on that one i think that's pretty pretty good point there i feel
1: like i that's maybe my second point in the show tonight <laughs> 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 You've That's got like good. F- you all consistently have. I mean, you've got probably fifteen. But I'm just saying, as long as we're keeping score, I appreciate it. I'm going to take my points.
0: There you go. All right,
1: there you go. Frances Sternhagen. Wow, <laughs> she's so good. She's Man. so good. She's this is this is she's just brassy. She is smart and mean and self deprecating, and she is the ultimate foil and partner for sean connery
0: absolutely absolutely i just loved her to pieces i mean she's somebody that we've talked about before on the show she was in the hospital yep yep and i feel like there was another one misery she was in misery of course
1: yeah that's right look at her so
0: yeah she's she's great and i man i just have fun watching her on screen she plays that kind of uh that just cynical sort of person so well, and the relationship that she has, and just the attitude she has about being the doctor. I mean, she's just such a grumpy doctor. You know, she <laughs> you, you meet her and she's berating this nurse for getting the thousand slash a hundred wrong on the on the page, and it, it's just great. And then and then to see him do the exact same thing to her. I just loved that. It starts so antagonistic and then the way that they kind of grow and this relationship kind of forms as the two of them come together and then really she becomes the only person that really supports him and I really liked that.
1: Yeah, I like that they didn't go with a you know with the the young leading lady, you know. I mean, they went with somebody who really had has dramatically more presence than than Hollywood typically does. And uh and I think she was she was a terrific addition.
0: The only problem that I had with it is that I I did feel that in some way it did dilute a little bit of that man, uh, the high noon, you know, man left all by himself to his own devices to try to figure out how to stop these guys. I mean, I I really enjoyed her and I enjoyed that she does end up helping him. But so, so, I mean, I enjoyed it in the context of the story, but when I look at it in the aspect of, hey, this is a High Noon remake, that to me is like, well, they kind of messed that up because I don't feel that quite as much. He's not alone.
1: Well, I, I guess I sort of disagree because in High Noon, he's not really alone. He has Grace Kelly, and I feel like they needed somebody to scratch the metaphorical face if they're going to do that kind of a thing. I mean, he had Cooper had an assistant in, in Grace Kelly in High Noon, and well, that he to did, me but is the he... role that that Francis plays.
0: I guess the difference for me is that he didn't know that that he had Grace Kelly. He thought he was going into it all alone, and essentially he did until the gun start, the gunfire started, and then she kind of came to his aid. This one, I mean, he he knew that she was she was helping him, so he he never really felt alone. That's 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 my sense of it.
1: All right, I'll give you one point for that. <laughs> all right, James Seeking.
0: He's uh, Doogie's dad.
1: Oh, Andy, he's Doogie's dad. I've been dying to place that.
0: Glad I could help.
1: He's totally Doogie's dad.
0: That is where I know him from.
1: Oh, so (laughs) good.
0: He was on Hill Street Blues. I mean, he has been around for just forever doing lots of stuff. And actually, he is quite the Peter Hyams regular. I think that he's... Been in, uh, gosh, Capricorn One, this, the Star Chamber, and Narrow Margin. I think the two of them have worked together on all those films.
1: Goodness, he was in General Hospital in 1963. Note to self: General Hospital's been on since before 1960. These soap operas are bananas. Uh,
0: 73, I believe, right? Or was he? Did he start in 73?
1: Well, the, so he, the show started in 63.
0: Right. He was on 73 to 76. All right. All right. There you go. That's uh, that's, I'm just, that's I'm why just I was confused by your... I was of, like, well, I see 73 here. But then I realized that was his, yeah, his that was, term. Yeah,
1: that was his... Uh, you're right. I didn't even look at that. I was just really focused on the fact that, holy cow, 1963, General Hospital. Oh, yeah. That is crazy. I still haven't been able to beat the Luke and Laura storyline. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? <laughs> <laughs> Uh Kika Markham uh, plays the wife. Uh we don't see her very often, uh very much. Uh but you know, she she abandoned Sean Connery What are you going to do? You'll have uh, no friends at this table, Kika.
0: That was that was that was rough.
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh the big uh, surprise foil at the end is Clark Peters. Uh he he takes over as the sergeant when uh, uh James Seeking is is uh, uh is done for. And, uh, and he uh, is the, he's the guy who puts on a suit and he chases him and they have the punch off on the grid, the slow motion punch off in space (laughs) suits.
0: You know, I, I loved the moment where he's like grinding, uh, Connery's head up against the panel and like the sparks are shooting everywhere. Yeah. I just wish that there was a little more to that. Like something about kind of the sparks and everything. I was like, gosh, that seems so cool. Um, I wish that it was like shorting his suit out or I yeah. wish that they had that actually integrated that into the fight a little more than they did.
1: Yeah, it was a visual that was cool, but there was no sense of threat because it was a helmet. Right. Like it, right, it exactly. was not causing him pain. Right. So I didn't get that. I, I felt like they didn't sell that very well, and that was just sort of my problem with the final fight. I think it was that—that's the the weak part of the film, uh, of an otherwise fantastic film. But uh, he's—I really like the way he plays it, and it's a little, maybe a little too obvious when he's he's grilling Francis Stern. and says, "Well, where is he?
0: Where? Right. No, oh, really, his... where
1: is he outside?
0: Yeah. Right. <laughs> that that was. If there's any problems I have, it's it's some of the foreshadowing of the script yeah. are just it's it's pretty blatant. It's, it's like. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's pretty blatant, that's true. Yeah. Uh the sequence that I am I'm most thrilled with, though, of of all of them, you know, you take get get rid of the get foreshadowing, get rid of the fight in the greenhouse, it's the Steven Burkhoff uh scene. He has gone bananas from the, the drugs, and he's taken a prostitute hostage, and he is so wired uh in this. He's just riveting.
0: You're just you're just thrilled that your boy from Under the Cherry Moon is back in action.
1: Why do you of course I am? But you say it with just
0: such disdain. <laughs> no, he's great here. I actually really <laughs> like Stephen Burkoff. This, you know, he plays such, uh, such mean characters. I mean, he does it so well. And he does it really well here. I mean, he's really kind of scary here. He's so scary. Not a guy I want to run into on a street corner at dark. No,
1: Uh I John Ratzenberger also uh in in the film as Tarlow Uh obviously John Ratzenberger we we know from Cheers uh, as Cliff Clavin. He was also in uh, the the um Toy Story films.
0: Every Pixar movie.
1: Well, oh, he actually yes, he's every Pixar movie. Uh, and
0: he gets his head blown up here. You certainly yeah. not going to see that in a Pixar movie. No,
1: no, you don't. <laughs> I want to see that so badly in a Pixar movie. Do you? <laughs> yeah, that would be great. <laughs> oh man! I want, I terrible. actually, I would like Pixar to helm a remake of Outland. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. Oh, uh, anyway, my. so wow. that's the that's anybody else in the cast that that you enjoyed seeing particularly.
0: You know, the only other one that I was going to bring up was uh, uh, the voice that we hear when uh, when um uh Peter Boyle's character. Uh, Shepherd, when he calls to bring in the troops to take O'Neill out, do you know who does the voice for that that he's talking to? Um, I'm, no, I don't. It is uh, Charles Chaffee, who we talked about way back on our Clute episode. He is the guy who played Peter Cable, the bad guy.
1: No kidding.
0: It is true.
1: No, I didn't know that. I would not have picked that out. It's not a voice that I, I recognize easily.
0: No, I, I didn't either, but <laughs> trivia, man. Trivia.
1: Nice. nice. Uh, this is another Jay, your favorite Jay for the music.
0: Good old Jerry Goldsmith. Yeah, we've talked about him uh, a few times recently. I I love what Jerry Goldsmith does here. This really kind of feels um, almost like a sister score to what he did in Alien. Absolutely. He, he creates that just very dissonant uh, sense that really kind of fits so perfectly for this type of sci-fi film.
1: It is this is one of those that that I mean it's it's great sort of atonal sound layer. Um it is one of those scores that is inseparable from the film.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I uh, I don't know if I had heard much of the score. I may have heard like the theme um but that may have been it. And then uh, and then I watched it and I mean it's it's Completely identifiable as Jerry Goldsmith's score. I, yes. I could just hear instantly that it was him. But um, just the way that he he paces the chase scenes um, and the investigative scenes and everything, I mean, it just it works really well in context of the film. Uh,
1: and yet, they apparently didn't have a credits editor.
0: <laughs> wow. <laughs> no, they didn't not just the credits but just like the uh all of the uh, on screen text i mean i was really blown away by the uh the typos that kept popping up in yeah. here
1: yeah <laughs> oh, it's pretty good i uh i didn't notice all of them uh, i i did pick up uh principal uh you said dependent it was misspelled a few yeah. times anything else that jumped out at you there were others yeah. Yeah. but um i but you i wasn't writing
0: down. them down and so uh, yeah i missed them but um it's just I don't know. I feel like that's one of those embarrassing things that it's like when you go to a restaurant and they have the 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 guy who paints in the in the windows like their whatever their special is that they're doing and they <laughs> misspell a word. It's like how did somebody not catch that in the process of of bringing that to fruition? There I always think okay, somebody inevitably is going to know how to spell the word right. So let's have them just make sure <laughs> somebody uh,
1: please. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it's the worst when you see it like on a chalk menu because you know it's written in chalk. Yes. And what that means is nobody can spell or nobody is reading it because nobody has fixed it.
0: Chalk menus I, are the worst. When I see chalk menus, especially the ones that are in reach, the thing you, that I like about those them. is I always try to like if, if <laughs> those do. chalks are. I'm that guy who's always trying to fix the chalk menus.
1: You're an activist menu editor. <laughs> That's what you do. Here, here. You know who probably doesn't need an editor? Who's that? Alan Dean Foster. <laughs> what do you think about that? He writes in beast mode. He needs he is, no editor.
0: He is a writing fool. That man cranks him out.
1: We just talked about him uh, briefly. With the yeah, what was it? It was, was, it was the Star, Star Wars, Wars: The Force yeah, Awakens that's adaptation, right. uh, and he also wrote the adaptation for this Outland. You can go read it. My goodness, does that guy corner the market?
0: He has done so many novelizations. Uh, I mean, just looking at the standalone novelizations, I mean, starting back in 74 with Dark Star, which is, yeah. uh, you know, John Carpenter's student film, ostensibly. Uh, Black Hole, Clash of the Titans, Outland, The Thing, Kroll, The Last Starfighter, Shadow Keep, Starman, Pale Rider. That's an interesting novelization for him. <laughs> Chronicles of Riddick. I mean, yeah, he is. Uh, I mean, and then of course he's done like the Transformers uh, movies, Terminator, Aliens. I mean, t- tons of Star Trek. It's crazy. This I love man it. is so busy,
1: so busy. I love that he has he, he has a thing. He's got a market.
0: Yes, he does. We should
1: have markets.
0: <laughs> We're working on it. Andy, how did it do? This film did okay. It it didn't. Uh, you know. It didn't break box office records or anything, but uh, you know it did all right for itself. It cost sixteen million, is what I found in uh, nineteen eighty-one dollars, which is about uh, almost forty-one million today. Um, it ended up making domestically about twenty million, so about fifty-one point two in today's dollars. So you know it made just enough to get by. Um, adjusted, that's about ninety-three thousand dollars per finished minute in today's dollars.
1: Not bad, and I I think that it is enough to say this movie is underappreciated and you probably haven't seen it, so you should go see it. That's my that's my pitch.
0: Hear, here. And as somebody who's never seen it before, I've gotta say I'm so glad to have watched it and discovered this little uh, bit of sci-fi joy.
1: Oh, ow, oh, ow, oh, I'm my heart is warm. <laughs> Let's flick chart it, shall we? Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, and you can see our list of movies, and uh, uh, w- it, this is what we're going to do. We're going to pick this one. We're going to rank it against all the other movies that we have done, and I think it's going to break the top 100. That's my pitch. I think it is.
0: That means it has to pass the first one, Pete.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> what is the first one?
0: Outland or Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? <laughs> crap. I know. This is why it gets hard. I gotta say, oh brother, art though. I'm sorry. I feel bad because I really did enjoy Outland.
1: I feel like you just—that's the first shovelful of dirt that you were
0: putting <laughs> on the on its grave. Wow! You can challenge me.
1: No, I can't. In good conscience, challenge you, Andy. I
0: too will pick. Oh, brother. All right, Outland or the Sandlot. Outland. Now here, I will go with Outland. Yes. Outland or The Roaring Twenties. Outland. Definitely Outland. Outland or A League of Their Own. Outland. You know, here I'll do A League of Their Own.
1: Hmm. There's literally no crying in space. (laughs) There was no crying. Your head just explodes. (laughs) Your head just
0: explodes. It's like your body cries. One For, <laughs> big blob of blood.
1: <laughs> For fun, I will challenge you on this, Andy. I think Outland should be uh, ranked higher than a league of their own. Here we go. All right, ready? One, one two, three, three paper. paper. All right. One, one two, two, three, three
0: scissors. Rocks. Oh, sorry, man. All right.
1: You know, you do what you got to do.
0: I do what I got to do. Outland or Syriana. Uh, Outland. I'm, I'm gonna do Syriana.
1: Sorry. <laughs> okay. Are you ready? Uh huh. One, one, two, two
0: three. three. Scissors. Paper. Oh,
1: crying <laughs> out loud!
0: I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Outland or the Deer Hunter? <sighs> oh,
1: Justin, I just just the Deer Hunter's tough to
0: watch. It is tough to watch. It is really, it is a a feat of strength to watch that one. It is really strong.
1: to watch. I'm going to go with Outland.
0: I am too. Even though Deer Hunter is the better film, I think. Outland or The Verdict? Oh, Outland. I really liked The Verdict, but I'm going to pick Outland. And uh, Outland, Pete, or Field of Dreams? Outland. Outland, Outland, Outland. <laughs> okay,
1: one, one, two, two, three. three. Outland. <laughs> Outland crushes rock. Okay, okay,
0: okay. I'll, I'll give it to you. Actually, I'm just. I'm feeling like I'm feeling very generous. I'm going to give you Outland. Is it? Are one. you
1: feeling generous because you've beat me at every turn? Yes. Okay. <laughs>
0: All right, that puts it at 135, so it didn't quite crack the top 100, but, you know, we've talked about a lot of movies on this podcast, and, uh, you know, it's still, it's almost in the top 50%.
1: Man, I wish I could grade people that way in my classes. You're almost in the top 50%. Still great. Wink. (laughs) Wink. (laughs) Oh, well. All right. What are you going to do? How's this do for your star rating? So curious.
0: This is, uh, you know, it's a tricky one because I actually like this more than High Noon, which I rated four stars last week. I feel like this is a three and a half right now for me, which is weird because I actually like it more than High Noon now.
1: You, uh, that should, I'm going to give it a four and a half stars.
0: I think I, I, I feel obligated to bump it to four because of that. So I'm giving it a four. So you're at four and a half. Yes. All right, there you go.
1: So, do we do quarter stars? Is that how it works? Well,
0: it's four point two five, which will round up to four and a half.
1: I love rounding up. I it's, feel like I lost a lot, but I I still ended up a winner. Andy, thanks.
0: You did. That's good. It's good. Letterbox
1: <laughs> Letterbox dot com slash the next reel. Check out our profile over there and our lists and how, how just just a lot of joy. There's a lot of Letterboxd joy over there and now uh andy where do we go from here we're moving into a new uh, original for our originals and their remakes series
0: we are this is going to be um i'm looking forward to this one neither of us have seen infernal affairs and uh so we're going to watch that and follow it up with its remake martin scorsese's the departed
1: fantastic i i haven't seen infernal affairs but i really am looking forward to seeing the departed again
0: Yeah, me too. And I'm really curious to see kind of the comparison between these two. And uh, it's interesting that Infernal Affairs, I think, spurred two sequels, I believe. And uh, I mean, I don't think I've ever heard of any plans for kind of following suit with The Departed, but that would be an interesting way to go.
1: Totally. Absolutely. Well, this is going to be another good pairing. And uh, until then, I got to go to bed.
0: All right. I'm gonna go put on my handy dandy neck protector and go poke around in a meat locker looking for drugs hidden in the frozen beef.
1: (laughs) Um you know, we're relegated to the two stars, Andy. Did you see this? Nobody likes Mm -hmm. the transfer. The DVD is terrible. Blu-ray is much better. I got mine on iTunes. It's beautiful. But apparently, everybody who got the DVD left one star on Amazon. Nobody left a one star that was legitimately about the film uh, on Amazon. So I begin with a two star by a customer entitled Slow, Slow, Slow. I wanted to like this movie so much. I love Sean Connery. I love outer space epics. I love Lone Man Against Hired Guns movies. I hated this movie. I couldn't believe how phenomenally slow this movie was. The dialogue was just very mundane. I can't remember a single scene that stands out as good. It almost felt like you were watching a small group of really dumb people trying to think of something to say about a topic they neither knew nor cared about every time two people ended up speaking to one another. The big finale with the mercenaries showing up to kill the sheriff was just a non-event. Can't people think of a cool way to kill bad guys in the future? Nothing in this movie clicked for me. And I really tried to let it work. If I was given this DVD, I'd never unwrap it. Ouch. Yeah. yeah. Can't Another one of, of the novel way to kill people.
0: people in the future. I mean, come on. Blowing them out of the, out of the hatch? I thought that was great.
1: Heads exploded <laughs> multiple times in this movie. I think they didn't see this movie. That's yeah. what I'm saying.
0: Well, I ended up with a three-star by Michael Clavelli, who says pretty good cop story in a sci-fi setting. It's unusual seeing Sean Connery in a film this old where he isn't a dashing undercover agent, but he's pretty good in it. On the whole, it's not a bad movie. It ju- it's just that it doesn't sci-fi well. <laughs> you can take all the elements of the story and set it in an urban setting, and it's pretty much, it'd pretty much work the same way. Yeah, it takes place in space, but it's not that like people are being used as pods to farm alien life forms, or that machines are becoming so sentient that they're hypnotizing workers to kill themselves. Nothing like that. But it's not a bad movie. I think that Michael kind of missed the whole point and the whole idea of having a story like this uh, in space. I mean, it can be anywhere, but the fact that it's in space, I think, is what gives it uh, those intriguing elements that make it uh, work so well.
1: Hypnosis robots are so played. Yeah.
0: Been there, done that. (laughs) Thanks, Amazon. Amazon. Okay, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season five, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. I'm getting better at this. 1939. Gone with the Wind.
1: Wizard of Oz. Goodbye, Mr. Chip. uh, Down to the Baskervilles. Nice. Meryl Streep. Kramer vs. Kramer. uh, Zoe's Choice. uh, French (laughs) Lieutenant's Women. Nice. How about Naughty Children? Uh, uh, The Bad Seed. uh, Village of the Damned. The Innocents. Nice. Uh, your favorite, David Mamet. Clint
0: Eric, Ross. Oh, I figured you'd nail that one. We've covered lots of great movies that started as books. Books like Metropolis, Manhunt, Ministry of Fear, The Great Escape. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible.
1: Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content.
0: Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts.
1: I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it.